This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Hey, family. Up next is an interview I did with Abdur Rahman Mohammed. He is the documentarian for Who Killed Malcolm X, which uh, debuted on Netflix in February. So I was combing the internet and I think I found him on Twitter, which is where I find a lot of people that I invite onto the show. And I reached out to him. He got back to me. I called him. We spoke on the phone off mic for about an hour. And he's fascinating. He has spent most of his life pursuing this question, who killed Malcolm X? And his documentary, which I've done a podcast on, kind of spells out everything. But what most impressed me is the dogged determination his, you know, let me welcome to the show a gentleman that devoted a lot of his life to finding out who killed him. The Netflix special, Who Killed Malcolm X, powerful. I think you guys should watch it if you haven't already. Let me welcome historian, writer, journalist, activist, the one and only Abdur Rahman Mohammed. Welcome to the Karen Hunter Show. Thank you, Karen. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming through. Um, very impressed with, with, with the work that you put in. Tomorrow we celebrate... Uh, Malcolm X's birthday would would have been 95 had he lived had he lived where do you think he would be today what do you think he would be doing today and do you think black people would be in the condition that we're in in terms of still battling the same things we were battling 50 60 years ago well I get that question asked a lot and uh, it really is the $50,000 question um He was trying to turn a corner at the end of his life. Uh, He was tired of being portrayed as a a demagogue or um, the boogeyman. He he wanted to be respected as the intellectual that he was. And um, he wanted to engage the civil rights movement in some type of way. Uh, In in fact, he was trying to reach out to all of the uh, civil rights leaders And I'm not saying he was trying to be an integrationist. I'm not saying that. But he was trying to figure out what his role was going to be in his new movement going forward. Uh, I I think he would have built some type of broad coalition uh, type structure. Um, I definitely definitely think he would have been, he would have continued to be militant. He would have continued to be angry. um, And he would have continued to advocate for self-defense. Now, that's different than, you know, aggressive, let's take it to the police, you know, and and just menace the police just for posturing sake. He wasn't really about that, but he was definitely for armed self-defense, especially if you look at what's going on now in Brunswick, Georgia. You know, the the words of this man just come back to you all over again. Even there's a clip in the, the docuseries, Who Killed Malcolm X, in the very beginning, where he says the police will bust you upside your mouth and then arrest you for attacking them. And uh, if that's not what we see down there in Brunswick, if that's not what we see in Texas, that's not what we see in North Carolina, all over the country, even today on his 95th birthday, which will be tomorrow, then this tells you that there would have been a place for Malcolm X today. And he, in the same way that he didn't take it then, he would not take it now. What drove you? Um, this, this, this piece, man, 30 years of your life devoted to putting it all together, following the clues, talking to people, 
you didn't stop. You didn't stop. Ended up in my backyard of East Orange. I had to drive around, look at that mosque where that brother was, was uh, laid to rest. And I was like, wow, this was all in these spaces that I've traveled in my lifetime. What, what propelled you to continue to not quit to find the answer that you were looking for? What propelled me was a sense of justice and also the reality that um, if someone like myself didn't do it, that it wasn't going to get done. Uh, and I also realized that this was an open, gaping wound in the heart and in the spirit and the consciousness of our community, whether we realized it or not, you know, and in fact, the almost universal acclaim that the series has received, and it has received acclaim all over the world. I get emails from every single part of the globe, uh, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, India, South Africa, Nigeria, Malaysia, India, Australia, Germany, France. It's been translated into French. It's been translated into Turkish. I'm told that I'm something of a celebrity in Turkey. I've never even been to Turkey. Um, that's because of the love that people have for Brother Malcolm and the cloud that has been hanging over his death uh, up to the time I came around for four or five decades. And it was a question that had to be resolved. And I saw clearly that no one was going to do it. And the answer to that question was going to die with my generation. I'm the generation that came after Malcolm. And, uh, you know, this is not the kind of story that could have been resolved simply or merely through studying documents. You had to go in the field and you had to talk to people and you had to get people on the record before they passed away. So that's what drove me. The fact that uh, no one was going to do it. No one was doing it uh, until, you know, uh, I came along. So let me tell you, uh, well, let me ask you, I, I grew up, I was exposed to um, uh, the nation and, and Brother Malcolm at an early age. So I grew up with a, a certain understanding of what I thought had happened based on the information that was available. When I saw your documentary, I mean, it completely changed a lot of the perspectives that I had had. So knowing that, I want to ask you, you, you spent 30 years uh, undertaking it. Why do you think, and I know you, you kind of mapped it out and explained it in the, in, the, in the series, but why do you think you met with so much resistance from fellow Muslims when you were just trying to find justice? Well, it, it was really two, um, two aspects to that. One is there was a religious rationale or re religious justification that was used to protect the killers, I'm talking about the shooters now. I'm not talking about the killers uh, in the government and the FBI and the New York City Police Department who are equally culpable, and I want to make that clear. They're equally guilty. All three of these entities are equally guilty. Many people want me to come out and say, oh, the feds did it. The feds killed Malcolm. They want me to say it like that. And really what, they want, really what they're looking for is some type of exoneration of the nation of Islam, you know, to just make it the, the white man took out Malcolm. No, they all took him out. The nation, Hoover, Hoover's FBI, and the New York City Police Department. But though there was a religious rationale, you know, this man is a good Muslim now. 
we're not going to turn him over to the disbelievers. You know what I'm saying? He he made his pilgrimage to Mecca. His his he's um you know he's been forgiven for his sins. He's doing good in the community. What good is it going to do now to expose him, right? Or to expose these men? What good is it going to bring to our community? You know, let's let sleeping dogs lie. It's not. It's of no benefit. And you saw that in the series. So there was a religious rationale, mm-hmm. but there was also a street rationale, which is the no snitch ethic, right? That um, you know, we just we're not going to go out like a rat. We're not going to go out like a sucker. You know, and also. I may throw a third element in there as well, which is a sense of collective guilt. You know, they felt mm-hmm. that even though these were the men who actually carried it out, we all felt the same way about Malcolm. So why would we give this man up when we would have done the same thing ourselves? So it was kind of thing of let's, you know, let's just keep this under wraps. Let's take this to the grave and, you know, we'll all be better for it. As you can see, we were not better for, better for it. Why, why yeah, did he have to die? I'm sorry, Lamont. I know you had a follow-up, so let me be quiet. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, there was one, um, I guess for me, I don't know if I was paying attention all the way, one loose end with the three gentlemen when uh, the shooters, alleged shooters, you know, they had question marks on their face, and, and, and throughout the series they were never readily identified. Were you able to piece those uh, uh, parts of the puzzle together? In the, in, the, in the very end, and identify the other two? Yes, we, we know who the other men were. Uh, of course, you, you saw the face of Talmadge Hare, who filed right, the affidavit right. in 1977-78. The right. other men were Wilbur McKinley, a construction worker. He had a small right. construction company there in Newark, and the other one was Leon Davis, who actually, uh, through my research, I found out that he was the youngest member of the team. He was only about 18 years old. Okay, he's the man who fired the Luger. Uh, you know, we were trying to answer the question, what took Malcolm's life? It, it was not the Luger. It was not the 45 or the, the 48. Shotgun. It was the shotgun. Mm-hmm. That's what took his life. You know, so it was, a, it was an empirical question. Uh, you may see the faces of the other assassins should there be a season two. Okay. Oh. Okay, six episodes. Who killed Malcolm X? Let's go back to February 21st, 1965, the Audubon Theater. And you craft this day, you know, what he did before he got there. His wife, his kids are in the Audubon in Harlem. Uh, there's a lot of people there. Uh, and, and they're there to hear this man speak. He's nervous. And it's not dissimilar to the night before Mal- uh, Martin Luther King gave the, I may not get there with you, but we're going to get to the promised land speech the night before he was mm-hmm. actually murdered at the Lorraine Motel. There was a foreboding that seemed to be with, with Malcolm. There was a foreboding and he had security. One of the people, one of his lead security people, actually an FBI informant. Why did he have to die? Take us to that night and, and, and set the, the framework for why Malcolm X had to die then and there. Why did he have to be killed? Um, that's just a very, um, complex question. Why did he have to be killed? There were different motives for his death. If you, uh, if you look at his murder as the intersection of interest between the federal government under the, uh, I'm talking now about the FBI mm-hmm. under the leadership of the, uh, diabolical foul, 
uh, J. Edgar Hoover, the, uh, the, the New York Police Department, who knew it was coming and did absolutely nothing about it. You saw how cynical they were and indeed how happy they were that Malcolm was assassinated. They could have prevented it, and they chose not to. And, of course, the Nation of Islam had their own motives uh, because he was seen as a traitor, a Judas, a Benedict Arnold. He had turned on the Honorable Elijah Muhammad in their view, uh, you know, a man that they viewed as the infallible messenger of God, you know, God's apostle or prophet, all right? So it was a kind of apostasy uh, that could not be tolerated, and Malcolm was exposing this man for being, uh, you know, somewhat lecherous, and not somewhat lecherous, lecherous, okay? And, uh, you know, essentially a hustler who um, he called, I'm using the language, he, he, he called him a fake, a faker, all right? He felt guilty about leading people into this movement that he believed in 1,000%. And when he saw the leadership was just getting money and girls and cars and luxury, and it was really just something of a scam, really, that he felt scammed and he felt played. And uh, he felt bad that he had led all of these people into this group. And when he came back from Mecca, he was determined that he was going to tell the truth about what real Islam is, what it's all about, and it's not the nation of Islam. Uh, and he was going to, um, you know, try to amend uh, fences with uh, the civil rights leaders. And uh, it's really because of his scandal, what they viewed as scandalizing the Honorable Elijah Muhammad that, uh, especially once he revealed the, the, the business with the secretaries and their children. That was the last straw, June of 1964, when Malcolm made that public, first at the Autobahn Ballroom, and then when he comes out of the trial for uh, his home eviction, um, he makes, once he, once he put that in the public, it really was all over. You know, he had to be dealt with because uh, they saw him as trying to destroy that institution that had brought so much um, discipline and, uh, you know, uh, reform in their mm -hmm. life. You see all of the bullets, uh, the, the, the masterful, you know, retelling of this, of this murder, but then the actual footage and the actual seeing all, so many bullets flying through. His wife and his four babies are there. It's unconscionable to me that these men, these upstanding men that believe, men of faith, could so recklessly fire off bullets into that direction with his wife and his four daughters sitting right there. I, I that was unconscionable. Yeah, well, you know, um, these these are the types of people that constituted the membership of the Nation of Islam. You know, I mean, the Nation of Islam was comprised of brothers who were in the feds, you know, brothers that were living that street life, brothers that was, uh, you know, shooters. Uh, not all of them. And I was going to say, weren't you, weren't, you, weren't you in the nation? Abdul Rahman? No, I was Muhammad? not in the nation. I was you not were... in the nation. Never? I was not in the nation. I was never in the nation. However, like, 
many of us, you know, when I was young, I was influenced uh, by the oratory and the personality of uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan. He used to speak at Howard University all the time. He was in D.C. all the time. Um, and, I mean, you know, before you get knowledge, you know, the brother is, is, is magical in his oratory. You know, I mean, absolutely spellbinding. And so, for sure, you know, I was influenced by him and the show of unity and discipline and um, it was quite impressive and dazzling. Uh, but then when I started to learn the history uh, about, um, you know, what he said about Malcolm and his refusal to, you know, accept the traditional Islam as Malcolm was trying to teach it, um, I, I became you know, point blank, uh, you know, a, a nemesis of the movement. I, I, I'm known. I'm known in that community as that dude, you know what I'm saying, that doesn't like them. I'm, you know, and, you know I'm just being an open book okay. about it. All right. Now, I don't know if you can answer this, but one thing that I, I noticed um, during the series um, was there was a, and you're speaking of, uh, of Minister Farrakhan, there was, there was kind of a, an implied theme um, where the narration of hearing what you're saying and then what's being shown in the footage that kind of pointed at, at, at Farrakhan um, and his involvement, but it never spoke to it. Was that, was that deliberate on your part? We deliberately left Minister Farrakhan out of the series, and I'll tell you why. The issue of his involvement or non-involvement uh, or the question of his involvement in the assassination of Malcolm X has, in a sense, been publicly adjudicated. He, he has addressed it many, many times. Mm -hmm. uh, we knew that Savior's Day was coming up. Uh, we knew the release, you know, would be in February. And um, we didn't want to deal in conspiracy theories, okay? Uh, Farrakhan knows what he has to answer for. Farrakhan was the minister in Moss number 25, in Newark, New Jersey, where the killers came from the very afternoon that the assassination took place. He drove down from Boston that morning, okay? So um, what he knew, he knew. But what you can prove, that's a different story. You see what I'm saying? So one of the reasons why our series has been so universally acclaimed and its conclusions accepted is because we stayed away from conspiracy theories. If we had included Mr. Farrakhan in it, he would have hijacked it. He would have done what he always done, does, right? Netflix is using this brother to come after the minister to take me down. The government's not going to get me. He, he would have demagogued it. He would have taken all the, you know, air, oxygen out of the room, and it would have been about, you know, and we wouldn't have the goods. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? We wouldn't have had the goods. And, he, and, and, you know, we weren't going to give him that rhetorical victory. We snatched it away from him and kept a laser focus on who exactly plotted this thing and how they carried it out. Got it. We're talking with filmmaker, writer, historian, journalist, Abdur Rahman Mohammed. We're talking about who killed Malcolm X. It's on Netflix. And may I say this one thing, basically? Sure. I just wanted to, I wanted to clarify something I said earlier, okay? I'm not the only one 
who has worked on the assassination of Malcolm X. I wanted to clarify that. Yes. I'm the only one who took it to the limit. Okay. Mm-hmm. There were people, the scholars before me, who did good work. All right. Mm-hmm. Manny, Bob Zach Kondo, Carl Evans, I named these guys. Some of these people attacked me today, but I don't attack them. Okay. Some of these Malcolm X scholars attack me, but I don't attack them. I give them their due. But before I came along, there hadn't been any new research on the assassination of Malcolm X in 30 years. It was a dead letter issue. No one was talking about it at all, much less a six-part docuseries. So Mm -hmm. these brothers that come at me, they won't give me my respect, but I will give them their respect. I'm not the only Malcolm X scholar and the Malcolm X assassination authority, but I'm the one who took it to the limit, and I'm not going to let anyone take that from me. 866-801-8255. We got some people that want to talk on online. Let's go to Terrence in Missouri. You're on with Brother Abdul Rahman Mohammed. Welcome to the Karen Hunter Show. Hey, how you doing, Karen? Good. Uh, I don't want to mess up the brother's name that did the documentary, but... He's called Mr. Mohammed. Really appreciate Mr. Mohammed. Really appreciate you doing the documentary. I have seen it, my wife and I, about four times. So it was pretty interesting. But my takeaways... Radio. My takeaways was that, you know, watching that documentary, I felt like that back then and even now, and I've heard Marie Faber say this, we still do not collectively understand the white power structure. You know, that was one of my takeaways from it because I feel like that, you know, because we don't control our institutions or systems or systems, we're still in a predicament where a lot of misinformation is given to us, which adversely impacts us not thoroughly understanding the white power structure and how to adequately dismantle it. Another thing that I took away was that, you know, with Malcolm, You know, he had this burning spirit to really, you know, uh, create change in the African-American community. And I think to a degree that, you know, he was being held back by the nation. And I feel like sometimes when you have that burning spirit to create change, sometimes you have to do it by yourself. And it's just crazy that it's interesting that he had to go through so much with the nation, basically get pushed out of the nation to a degree and, you know, force himself to do his own, to do his own thing. And I just think that to me, I mean, you know, like with me, with my company, Exceptional Town to the 11th, when I, you know, I hosted an event not too long ago where, you know, as soon as this documentary came out, a week later, I hosted an event. I asked black people in my community in Kansas City, Missouri, what could we learn from this? Because there's so many takeaways. There's so many things that you can take away that you can apply to current society. Mm-hmm. So I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm going to watch it again because, 
And I'm still going to host another event because, like I said, this is not one of those documentaries that you can just brush off. It's something that we need to be watching and thoroughly understand how the government works and how being in certain black organizations can hold you back from really doing what you need to do to eradicate the issues that we have in this society. So I appreciate uh, each, each one of you all. So Thank you, Terrence. And your wife. Well, thank you, appreciate thank you, you, thank you, brother. Okay. I appreciate you. Uh, can I can I respond real quick to the brother? Or you have, sure. You have another question. Go ahead. Yeah, we got a bunch you of know, calls. What I wanted yeah. to say is, uh, the, you know, going back to that first question, one of the first questions you asked me, why did he have to die? I definitely talked about the nation's motivations, but going back to what uh, the question that just asked or the the, the caller just uh, brought up. Malcolm wanted, the government wanted Malcolm dead because he was internationalizing our struggle. He was not simply a black nationalist. He was not simply a Muslim, but he was a Pan-Africanist. And he was making connections in the, the Arab and Muslim world, the black uh, African world. And he was getting us to think internationally and globally, and he was shaming the United States government and exposing its hypocrisy all over the world. And he intended to take our case to the United Nations. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he was a, something of a diplomat, uh, for the entire African American community. He, he, he was shaming the government in in a way that it was creating foreign policy problems for them. You know, this was the, this was the era of the cold war when we were supposed to be the bastion of democracy and freedom, right? And justice and all of these sweet sounding words that he would talk about. But look at, look at what was going on, you know, in Alabama and, and, and uh, you know, in Mississippi and uh, all of these places. So he, uh, he, he connected us to Africa and that's a, that's a huge part of his legacy. Mm. We're talking with Abdur Rahman Mohammed the creator of Who Killed Malcolm X, the six-part Netflix documentary. Let's head over to Florida and welcome in David. You're on the Karen Hunter Show. Welcome. Hey, Ms. Karen and your staff. And hey. Muhammad, did I say that correctly? That's his I'm last name. Muhammad. You sure did. Yes. All righty. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Um, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I love Malcolm. It brings me to tears every time I hear that man's name mentioned. But I really feel that when Malcolm went over to Mecca and came back to the U.S. and said that he seen people with blue eyes mingling together and praying, our government, and forgive me for saying this, Elijah Muhammad, seen that Malcolm X was trying to bring unity with everybody of all race and color together in that religious. And Elijah felt that he was a threat because he was going to pull money it's always money away from his temple, and all the followers was following him. And the drag uh, cross-dresser, J. Abra Hoover, they called him, was trying to see that he was bringing us colored folks during those times on how to be decent people and live in decency and not allowing them to continue to push drugs and alcohol and priming your hair and all of that into our community, and I really feel that Malcolm X was that center person that was trying to bring peace with everybody, and I feel that's why they took him out of here. 
I don't know if that's, there's any truth to that, um, that part of it, the last part. But, you know, any threat to the status quo is a problem on any front, right? I, I think that that's kind of the case. People like to keep their power. And anything that threatens, if you could take somebody out and keep your power, I think that that is historically the way this country has dealt with it, black or white. Let's head over to Michigan. Monty, welcome to the Karen Hunter Show. You're on with Abdur Rahman Mohammed. Good afternoon, Karen and, and Brother Abdul and to the rest of the um, Hunter family. Hey. I just wanted to say um, the documentary was excellent. And I always think about um, Malcolm and Martin together. It seems that both of these men, as they both were starting to pivot and um, bring more people even together, just, just out of not just black people, when we look at Martin once, we knew his next set of work was going to be including everyone. Um, you know, he had to be taken out. And then when you look at Malcolm, once his views changed, um, that became him, you know, that became a even bigger threat. And I think about him in Detroit, a lot of the groundwork and work that Malcolm did here in Detroit. And ironically, here it is 50 years later, we have the largest population of Muslims that live right here in Michigan, outside the Middle East. And a lot of those people that I know, their friends, they actually followed and listened to Malcolm X as well. Okay. There was another woman at the Audubon that night, born on Malcolm X's birthday as well, May 19th, who we never talk about. And I want to resurrect this name, Yuri Kochiyama. Did you know her? What did you find out about her? She died in 2014. Did, did you have a conversation with Yuri? who was literally holding Malcolm's head when he was murdered in Audubon. She was there, this Japanese woman whose parents were interned in this country, was so wound into um, the liberation of Malcolm X and what he was talking about, that she was one of his strongest, staunchest uh, disciples, so to speak. Why don't we talk more about her? Um, Yeah, we should talk more about her. Uh, She was born in the lap of, uh, I wouldn't say luxury, but certainly comfort there in California. And um, she was transformed into a radical uh, because of the internment of her father in the, the concentration, not, I say concentration camp, I, I guess well, I should say concentration yeah, yeah, they camp, were, right? Yeah, definitely, yeah. The internment camps. And one day after he was released, after being held for six weeks, the, the day after he was released, her father died of a, of a medical condition. And then uh, soon after that, her entire family was put into this camp for three years. And this transformed her into an activist. And she was an activist for uh, Japanese reparations, Japanese-American reparations. She is, I think, the only Asian, maybe the only non-Black to join the OAAU. Uh, when Malcolm founded it there in New York on June of 1964. And she loved Brother Malcolm. She was a committed member of that organization. And she continued to be devoted to him until the day she died. But she was involved in many, many movements. She was uh, affiliated with the Republic of New Africa. She was uh, working for Puerto Rican uh, rights, the uh, exoneration of the Puerto Rican uh, militants and she I mean her her record is very very long and uh, you're right she does deserve a biography of her own really 
there could be there could be a uh, a docu series on the life of uh, Yuri Koki- Kochiyama. Mm. Let's talk about that. I just put it out there into the universe. I think I deserve to be a part of that. All right. (laughs) So speaking of entertainment, like uh, what is your, what is your opinion on the, the representation of Malcolm over the years in entertainment, specifically in Spike Lee's Malcolm X movie. And most recently in the uh, Godfather of Harlem um, series on epics. Well, to tell you the truth, I, I haven't seen the Godfather of Harlem. Okay. 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 Um, I, it, a lot of that has to do with uh, the promotion that we were doing for the docu series. It was coming out around the same time, but okay. uh, Spike Lee's movie is brilliant. It's mm-hmm. a masterpiece. Uh, considering the challenges that he was confronting, he had to deal with uh, Malcolm's people. He had and being you know uh, true to them, he had to be true to the Shabazz family. He had to make sure that. Uh, he didn't um, go cross the line in terms of representing the nation of Islam. Uh, he had a lot of challenges with making that film, um, principally financial, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, it's a piece of art. It you is. know, you can't approach. I will tell you what Malcolm's brother, Wilfred, his oldest brother, Wilfred, mm-hmm. the first member of the little family to join the nation of Islam in 1947. He thought it was a good movie. He said, it's not a documentary. But if you don't know anything about Malcolm X, it, it, it's a great introduction. Spike had to also deal with, you know, the entertainment value for a general audience. You know, this thing was meant to sell tickets. It was not what we did. You know what I mean? Ours is a documentary. Okay? It, it's, a, it's, a different, it's a different genre. It's a different craft. He's making a Hollywood movie with Hollywood money. And it's got to make money, you know? And, and he was true to the story. Now, he took a lot of license in mm-hmm. some of the other characters. But I will tell you this. Spike Lee virtually recreated the assassination scene mm-hmm. almost exactly as it happened, even to that white piano that you see on the stage. And one of the things, when I went to the municipal archives and saw the color photographs of the assassination scene, which you never see. You know, I was just blown away by color photographs from that day. And I was struck by all the decades that I've seen that piano on the stage. I never knew what color it was. Spike Lee got that kind of detail down pat. And if you look at the credits of his movie, he names the five assassins in the credits of the movie. If you go back and watch the movie and even the actors who play the assassins, the, the 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 casting they, they look, look like exactly them. like the men looked like in 1965 and it's a little wow. factoid the man who played william bradley william x bradley who went shotgun. on to become al mustaf shabazz the shotgun assassin mm-hmm. do you know that the actor who played him michael guest is from newark himself and mm-hmm. tragically he himself was cut down by a bullet from his former wife a year later Wow. A year or two later. Oh, my God. So uh, we have to go, but you have an open seat at our table, Brother Muhammad. And when season two uh, comes about, because it seems like there's going to be a season two, uh, I'd love to have you come back on and definitely want to keep talking about uh, who killed Malcolm X because the story has not ended. What? I have one more thing I'd like to share with your audience. I am teaching a Zoom class myself 
on the autobiography of Malcolm X, just go to Eventbrite and you can find all the sections. All right. And we'll tweet it out as well. And they can follow you at arm underscore legacy at arm underscore legacy. Thank you for being here today. Abdul Rahman Mohammed. 